Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audio books. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your hand, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, you name it. And here is the deal. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial Go get a book by Virginia Woolf. Go get some Dostoevsky. Go get some Stephen King. Maybe some David Sedaris. Does that sound good? Just about any book at Audible can be yours, free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the free audiobook, it helps the program. I get a few pennies. That is a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a wonderful deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the media that you have chosen to consume. This is the media that is now being digested by your brain. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It is sunny here. It is beautiful. It is the dead of winter. Uh, What did I do today? I went to the doctor. I had a physical. My resting heart rate is 46 beats per minute which is uh, slightly troubling. My blood pressure, 120 over 80. 120 over 80. So let's do some tweets, shall we? We haven't done tweets in a few episodes. That's sort of my go-to. Let's do some tweets. Here, right now, are some recent tweets from my personal Twitter account, at Brad Listy. Are you ready? Here we go. What if everyone in the world knew how to play the banjo? What if hell is a place where people communicate by coughing? A riveting Oscar-nominated documentary directed by Errol Morris 
about the makers of Two Girls, One Cup, with a score by Philip Glass. Twitter, happier, more productive. Imagine how weird the movie Grizzly Man would have been if, at the end of the story, Timothy Treadwell ate a bear. After 9-11, I remember feeling relieved that my last name wasn't Bin Liston. An incredibly expensive gourmet restaurant with a menu set in Comic Sans. My wife looks so beautiful in the blue flickering glow of our 52-inch high-definition flat-screen television. Imagine Tom Cruise laughing maniacally, angrily, approaching you slowly, and then suddenly, with great force, he drops down into the splits. Seems like if you made miniature burritos, like the size of your thumb, hundreds of them, and served them at parties, it could become a craze. Okay, uh, so there you have it, folks. That is it. Once again, some high-quality tweeting. I hope you enjoyed that. Was that enjoyable? I hope that was edifying for you. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today is Eli Horowitz. He is he, he was the managing editor and then the publisher uh, of McSweeney's for eight years. The publishing imprint there, McSweeney's. 
uh, and he has worked with a, uh, a variety of notable authors, including Michael Shabin, Joyce Carol Oates, and William Volman. His latest venture has generated a great deal of buzz and interest in the publishing and media and technology communities. Uh, it is called The Silent History, a serialized novel designed specially for the iPad and the iPhone. It is a, a novel that incorporates exploration and collaboration to tell the story of a generation of unusual children. It's a new thing. It, that's what it is. It's a new thing. That's what I'm saying. And uh, Eli is here to tell us all about it, to elaborate, to fill in uh, the blanks, and to provide details. So let's get to that. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is. This is my conversation with Eli Horowitz, the man behind the silent history. I am in my apartment on Cap Street in San Francisco. I'm looking out the window across the street is uh, this thick senior home with a very dramatic mural of old people playing guitar and swimming and stuff. Wow. I'm just pondering, pondering so, the podcast. It's okay. So when we're uh, when we're talking about old people playing guitar, is that what you said? Like we're talking like? So I can. Live. I mean, there's an old, old man playing guitar. There is an old man swimming wearing goggles. There's a woman doing a, a dance with fans. There's an, a woman playing piano. There's a woman wearing a crazy mask. I mean, it's one of those things that would be terrifying if you decide to let it be terrifying, but I'm mostly not terrified by it. Okay, okay, good. It's like six stories tall. It's intense. Oh, wow, okay. And like, I was just wondering, like, the age of these old Are we talking like 80-year-old people doing these things? In the, well, in the building, I think a lot of the residents are 80 and up. The uh, mural is like maybe 60 to 70, I would say, sugarcoating it a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to kind of... You know, it's to lure the people in. Right, right. Um, okay, well, I want to start because like the... Because the nature of the silent history is uh, innovative and new and it might require explanation for listeners who have not uh, you know, tried it out or have never seen anything like this before, I want to make sure we go through it so that um, you know, we can give people a clear idea of what it is. So why don't you just start by telling us the backstory and the basics of the silent history? Well, the backstory is just, um, I was working for McSweeney's. I was there for about eight or 10 years editing and designing the books in the journal. And, uh, ebooks were becoming more and more popular. And it was clear that that's where things were going to some extent, it's not, you know, to the elimination of books, but it was a rising thing. But the, um, the process of making the ebooks was kind of depressing. It was just taking a book that we had spent a lot of time trying to make nice and think about its physical existence, taking that and just making it kind of gray and ugly and unthinking. And so it seemed like the best ebook was still worse than the worst book, just in terms of aesthetics and experience. And so I don't know, that seemed to be selling us short. It seemed to be uh, not taking advantage of the possibilities that these things offered. Um, so I wanted to start thinking about how could these devices start opening up new ways to tell stories instead of just doing kind of um, blandified versions of the old ways. Yeah, I mean, because like ebook, I mean, I've done ebook conversions for my little tiny press, and 
you know, it's it's fairly straightforward. I mean, you can you can do it from like a Word document nowadays, can't you? Just like convert it into yeah. a, a Mobi file, and that's it. You know? Yeah, it's getting better. It's getting easier and not as gross, but still, you know, when you're laying out a book, there's all these things that you're thinking about, you know, to differing extents depending on the book. But even something like where's the line break, you know, or um, what does a chapter header look like? Not to mention the bigger things of like, what's the size of this book? What's the shape of this book? You know, is it on coated paper or uncoated paper? Is it a paperback or a hardcover? All these things affect the experience, even if you're not talking about some high design art book. And so when you were putting those on the Kindle, especially early Kindles, it was uh, all that stuff was lost. And I think a lot of readers didn't even know what they were losing necessarily. Um, because we're not necessarily conscious of those things. But yeah, it just seemed like readers and writers were getting a, a raw deal, kind of. So I wanted to think of what other alternatives there were. Okay, so, and then uh, you, concept, you, know, you conceived of the silent history. You, you, you conceived of the basic storyline, correct? Yeah, I, I sort of walked around a lot and took a lot of showers. That's where I do the best thinking and uh, had a lot of sort of rambling conversations with friends and came up with the basic storyline and the basic structure. Um, and the, the book was all along for this structure, which I guess we'll be talking about what that structure is. But the, yeah, the form and the content kind of grew up alongside each other. Mm-hmm. And then I brought on collaborators we'll be talking about them i guess yeah 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 i mean no because like the the book is about uh an affliction a disease an epidemic of children children who are born and they're silent yeah it's a it's told in oral history format sort of the idea is we're looking back on this event this kind of medical and societal event um, and trying to gain some understanding about by interviewing everyone associated. So there's parents, doctors, classmates, um, faith healers, cult leaders, imposters, all these things. And at the core are these children who are born without any language. They can't create it, and they can't comprehend it. And so it's you know a very difficult thing for the families and for the doctors. It's kind of a medical story at first, but no one could do anything about it. Um, and so people start to sort of give up on these children and think there's, they're almost just vegetables. And then a teacher at one of the specialized schools realizes that they're somehow communicating with each other. And so the story takes off from there. Okay. And so uh, how do people get this? And like, you know, I, I want to talk about, um, you know, just the basics of how they actually get it, how they read it, the serialization, how the content is delivered, and then we can get into the field reports and stuff. But uh, right. start there. So the book is an app. It only exists as an app on the iPhone and iPad. And it's, there's, two kinds, there's two kinds of material in the, in the app. Uh, there's the testimonials, and that's kind of the narrative backbone of the story. It's split up into 120 parts, which come out one per day, basically every weekday. Um, that'll be spread out over 7 to 12 months, depending on confusing factors that we're still figuring out. But um, and that's just a serialized narrative, uh, and that's that's the main story. That's the core of the story. Uh, then the other half is these things, the field reports, which are narratives that exist within the same world as the story, uh, but are set in very specific geographic locations around the country and even around the world. And they use that location to help tell the story, so it becomes like a walking tour of the fictional world mapped onto the physical world using the 
you know, using that mural across the street from me or using strange um, scrapes in the pavement or a strangely painted building or a weird plant somewhere or all those things at once. All those things go into the telling of a field report. And then I guess the, the thing that's maybe attracted the most attention is those things you can only read if you are physically there with your phone. Uh, when the phone, when your GPS on your phone matches the coordinates of the location, that's when you um, access that report. Okay, so just to review, uh, you have the testimonials, <laughs> you have the first-person oral history accounts of uh, this, you know, this epidemic, and that's the, like you said, that's the backbone of the story. And then you have essentially crowdsourced. Uh, I mean, is fan fiction the wrong term? You have readers of the story, readers who are, are, are you know, uh, who have the app and who are reading the testimonials can then create uh, part of the story themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's a little different from traditional crowdsourcing or fan fiction or whatever in that I'm still editing and curating all of those um, in a pretty hands-on way. Um so they all cohere with each other is one thing. These are sort of different ramifications. I mean, in a way, the impulse that was behind a lot of this was when I read a book or see a movie or any of these things that create a world in a really compelling way, I find myself wanting to continue to live in the world. I want to investigate that world. Um, you know, it raises, especially when there's this really kind of fundamental central premise like this, I want to see all the ways that can play out, not just how a couple characters deal with it, so the field reports are designed to let, to allow for all those different things to be investigated individually. So they wouldn't, and so the point is, I'm rambling out, but they wouldn't, um, they all cohere with each other because they're not, it's not like Twilight fan fiction where you're taking that same character and putting them in all these different situations. It's showing how this central medical condition would play out in all these different places and families and professions and personalities. Well, right. And yeah, the other, the other issue that I was thinking of is like quality control. So you're going through and you're editing all of these and you're making sure that... Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Because like if you just... It's more important. Yeah, it's extremely important, even more so than in any normal journal, because people who are reading these things are making a real commitment. They're physically going to the location. Right. So they have to have a confidence that it's going to... Uh, going to be a rewarding experience. Wow. And, and plus, like, you know, and then there's just the, the basic factor that a lot of people are reading this thing on their handheld device, whether it's an iPad or an iPhone or an Android or whatever it is. Um, so was that part of the, I mean, that had to have been part of the conceptualization that people are going to be mobile. So why not let them be out in the world in space and kind of take the fictional world and meld it with the actual world? I mean, was that, that had to be all. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, one of the, you know, to the extent we have uh, these abstract ambitions, it's that these devices can provide a way to bring us into the world and an increased sensitivity to the physical details around us. It doesn't need to be a retreat from that world. You know, I think too often digital and virtual are being treated as synonyms, but they can be really different. And so, you know, this in some sense is far less escapist than a normal book. Um, it promotes observation and sort of looking up instead of looking down. So those are all definitely our goals. And, you know, and, and just in the, in the other sense, yeah, we were really trying to build the format of this story around what these devices can do. I mean, I literally just made a list of things that an iPhone could do, you know, and they were dumb things like you can put it in your pocket. <laughs> you can walk around with it. It knows where you are. 
uh, updates are easy. You know, just little things like that. And I just tried to put them together in different combinations. Yeah. Well, and like, you know, it's interesting too, to, to, to hear like about your history and, you know, when, when you say the name McSweeney's and you talk about, um, you know, that experience, like what comes to mind for me is the, the physical book object. Like McSweeney's represents to me kind of, uh, a staunch defense of the print book. And then to have you come out of that experience and try to actually, um, elevate eBooks is an interesting leap. Like what did you, what did you learn in your years at McSweeney's, you know, working on the, on the traditional print side of things that you implemented into the silent history? Right. I mean, this definitely came out of the, the exact same impulse to me. It's not, it doesn't feel at all like a change or a reversal. It's that at McSweeney's, it wasn't even so much that, you know, we wouldn't have conversations about, you know, the smell of the paper and sort of, uh, you know, 500 years of book, book history and stuff. I mean, all those things can be nice, but we approached them more just like thinking about what form each of these projects was going to take and thinking about how we could maximize that, how we could use that form to help tell a story and how any story could be helped by being in the right form. So they'd be a challenge, you know, it'd be like this issue has a whole bunch of, there's two different kinds of things. So what would a book that had two parts look like, you know, um, or just that we're in more flamboyant ways or less flamboyant ways. But it was always just thinking, what are the possibilities of this form? How should this story, what kind of story does this form call for? And what kind of form does this, this kind of, <laughs> what kind of, you know, Back and forth, back and forth. Right, right. Uh, So this was the same kind of thing. Um, and uh, I came from the same place, just thinking, what are the possibilities? What's something else we could do? What would help happen if we push this a little further? Okay, and so here's a question, because uh, I think a lot of us in publishing, and you know, whether we're writers or editors or whatever it is that we do, uh, you can't help uh, but think about digital and the the various implications of it and then the various possibilities presented by it. And I think that this uh, project uh, really embodies that. And one of the questions I have for you is, you know, when it comes to expanding, um, you know, the scope of what an ebook can do, did you find yourself wrestling with questions of uh, multimedia, the, the interruption of text, like, you know what I'm saying? Because there's something, sort yeah. of, there's something sort of sacred about the, the, the words on the screen or the words on the page or whatever it is. And like, how did you navigate those questions? Definitely. Well, I mean, for one thing I should say about all of this is we don't see this at all as the hope is in no way to replace the traditional reading experience. Um, and I would be sad if like every book was like you go and stand on some dirty street corner and read your phone. <laughs> that is no way the goal of this thing. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of special things about the traditional reading experience that should be preserved and probably will be preserved. But we did also try and restrain ourselves a lot. I mean, we came up with this crazy project ultimately, but we really resisted multimedia elements and those things are always presenting themselves when you're doing anything on these devices. There's always like, why don't we put some sound in there? What if a little, you know, animated penguin danced across the, the screen? <laughs> and, you know, it can be a little hard to resist those, but, but we did. I mean, this is still just text. You know, this is about 200, 300,000 words of text packed in there. And that's it. That's all you're getting. It's a story. 
Mm. And when you say and we, so, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. And so I was just taking a sip of tea <laughs> as I pause for the next 80, 80 minutes of this rant. Um, the, yeah, it was really important to us that we were trying to envision new ways that a novel might be able to evolve. We weren't trying to just make some, we weren't trying to make a movie. We weren't trying to make a cartoon. We were trying to write a book and it was just, what else could a book be? It wasn't just like some kind of multimedia vomit explosion. Right. I mean, yeah, because that's like that, you know, that's one of those things that like you, you know, that I think at like first instinct or sometimes you just look at your device and you go, yeah, you could meld them somehow. And I'm sure there are going to be, you know, uh, examples of that, but it gets tricky and it gets kind of intrusive and, you know, you have to be pretty artful about the way that you do it. I haven't seen one that really, you know, has has knocked my socks off yet, I and mean, it may be, yeah. but I haven't seen it. Well, something I always try and think about is what are the actual storytelling desires that we have as readers and as writers? You know, any of these innovations or gimmicks or whatever you want to call them should be filling a need. They shouldn't be done just because they can be done. And so, you know, for this one, it was um, reading a book like, there's this book, there's Dennis Johnson book, Already Dead, that I love, or the movie Children of Men, that I love, or any of these things that provide this fully, fully realized rich world, I would leave the theater or close the book wanting to, you know, look around the corner, see what's off screen, see what's off stage or off the page. And so this was a way of designing a project to fulfill that desire. You know, I'm not having the desire when I read a book if only a little penguin would come dancing around the page. <laughs> that's not that's not something I'm feeling a need for. So, you know, that's a good way, I think, to stay grounded as people do different experiments in this, is make sure that you're actually sort of solving a problem or filling a need rather than just letting the capabilities, you know, determine the route. You know, I think you might have just zeroed in on, like, like we will know that like publishing is officially fucked when penguins and, like, panda bears start <laughs> dancing across screens. Like, the ultimate... Hopefully you know, someone's taking notes right now. Right. That's a free idea. I give it to all the listeners. Just have a cute little panda. Just, you know, wave at people on your title page. I mean, that's, the unfortunate thing is that's probably the salvation of publishing more than the demise. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, so when you, you keep talking in the first person plural, so why don't you talk about your collaborators? Because this has not been done uh, just by you. Oh, definitely. I never could have. Um, yeah, we had a really great small team that was all really fundamental to this. So my co-writers on the thing were Matt Derby and Kevin Moffat, who were both short story writers I had worked with at McSweeney's, and I knew to be really talented and really versatile and just really good dudes. And so I kind of mentioned this to both of them, and they they jumped on it in sort of a really enthusiastic and trusting way that I still don't quite understand why they did. But um, so the three of us created the the main story together, all the testimonials. And then uh, the fourth member of the group was Russell Quinn, an app developer who programmed the whole thing. And it was really important that all four of us were working closely together and also were all on board from very early on. Because I think a lot of times the demise of these projects is they're basically either you kind of you like write a book and then you sort of afterwards get someone to cram it into an app or you, know, you come up with some platform, you're a programmer, you come up with some platform and then you kind of get someone to make some text for it. And you can sort of feel 
what came first and what was crammed in later. Right. And we didn't want there to be that seams, those seams showing. We wanted it to feel like a, a unified organic whole. And so it was really important that we we're all together from the beginning. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's just like the thing that comes to mind just because I, you know, I don't know anything about technology yet. I've, I've run uh, a literary website for the past seven years and I know how dependent I am upon uh, programmers. Like you, you must... I mean, is Russell's the Russell Quinn is the, the mm-hmm. guy who designed it. I mean, he yeah. How how I mean, he's obviously the the MVP. I mean, you have to have some. Yeah, no, he's super fundamental. Yeah, because um, yeah, he. I mean, that's that's something that's really lacking in this field in general right now. Because anyone who has these skills, you know, they're getting hired by Facebook or Google or places like that. Right. Um, just because there's such a market for app developers. So it really takes a strange, heroic figure <laughs> to instead spend all that time making an experimental literary app. Right. Um, so, yeah, so he's, he is extremely talented and also, um, you know, is willing to follow uh, his own bliss, I guess. He's a freak. He's a freak. Let's just call him what he is. He is, yes. <laughs> and we're lucky to have him. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, I, I know how difficult it is to find somebody who's like really, really good at that stuff and also really, really into the odd literary scene, you know. Yeah. But, you know, it was also remarkable with Matt and Kevin that they were willing to really fit themselves seamlessly into this project, too, and to really take the confines of it and use those as productive challenges instead of sort of feeling like we're writers, we need to be free. So it was really everyone stepping out of their comfort zones and being willing to be excited about being a part of a larger project. Yeah. Well, and so, okay. So with, with regard to the actual creation of the narrative, the book, uh, mm-hmm. is it done? Did you have to finish? Did you feel like you had to have it finished before you launched or was it something that you felt like you could, um, you know, launch halfway done and then finish as you went because it's a serialization? We, in theory, we could have done that, but we didn't. I think we just would have been nervous that we would have not had an ending, that <laughs> we could have never figured the ending out because right. that certainly can happen to these things. Um, and as it happened, it did take us a long time to crack the ending in a way that we felt good about. But so, so we wrote it all first. We still do go back and... It's divided into six volumes, and before each volume begins being serialized, we go back and re-edit and revise that volume. So we're currently partway through that. Okay. And so, uh, so it, it's a fluid document, but uh, it you know definitely goes places, it ends well, it all comes together. Yeah. And so you've worked as an editor, um, you know, with a, a whole you know variety of notable writers, and so you've obviously got a lot of experience collaborating creatively, but you know, when it comes to writing long form narrative, uh, it's usually one person locked away in a room doing this stuff. What was it like to have multiple people, you know, with a project like this, do you feel like what were the benefits of having kind of a, a hydra headed approach to story creation? It was really, it was really fun. I mean, for one thing, it just, we were able to do it, you know, in about, uh, 18 months, we wrote this 500-page novel, essentially. Um, so that took, you know, that's the obvious benefit of the collaboration. But also, it's just, um, you know, like any team, different people have different strengths. And so, you know, anything, um, for example, anything to do with 
like sci-fi, the more sci-fi aspects of the story. Matt was great about, you know, and Kevin was still like working on his flip phone. So Matt would come in and do those kinds of things. Um, Kevin, you know, generally was the master of like failed romance for whatever reason. So he would write great entries <laughs> about that. Um, and also the whole thing is designed as an oral history. So each day is spoken by a different character. So in theory, each day should have a whole new voice. And so the fact we had, you know, two different writers creating the thing um, made that just that much easier. And did it's you really create this? Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, did you write any of them yourself? So the way we worked, it was, it was really, I think, fun for all of us. I would outline the whole thing, you know, each of the uh, 120 days, who, which character was speaking and what basically would happen. And they were each assigned to different characters. So like, this would be one of Kevin's days. So I'd send Kevin the basic description, and he and I would talk on the phone for a half hour, an hour, flesh that out, figure out new details. He would go off and write it pretty quickly in just a few days um, and send it to me in whatever form. Sometimes it would be very polished, sometimes it would be very rough, because, again, we had that sort of ongoing collaborative relationship. So, you know, we would trust each other in that situation. And then, so then I would edit it pretty, in a way that was a lot more aggressive, I guess, than I would be in a normal situation where I was trying to protect the writer's feelings, you know. This was, we're all in it together just trying to get the, a good book done. So, and then we would go, so I would sometimes, I would edit it, sometimes write it, you know, a paragraph or something myself, send it back, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, so it was really great. You know, for me as an editor, it was super fun because I could just make up these things, you know. Like today, there's an angry mime and something, gets in some fight with one of these kids. Just an angry mime. I'd like to see that. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. You know, I would have said more if I knew more, but I didn't know more. That's why I just said angry mime. And then Matt takes that and does an amazing job, you know. Uh, so I got to sort of half imagine things and then just see these guys breathe life into them. And I think from their side, it was great because they're both particularly masters of the short story. And, you know, you're always kind of supposed to, like, grow up and write a novel or something. And I think they were finding that process a little bit frustrating. And so I think it was fun for them to have someone thinking through the architecture of the thing and making sure it's all going somewhere. Right. And, you know, we could give them specific challenges and also, you know, really, really fast feedback. And then what so, was, yeah, it was really fun. And then, okay. And so what was Russell doing? So then you take the technology guy in. And so as you're creating this narrative, you're also working with him to try to conceptualize the app itself and how it's going to function and how to make it seamless and how to make it user-friendly and stuff like that. Is that happening simultaneously? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the writing was underway first, but even before the, the thing was being actually programmed, I was talking to Russell about it, and so he was um, getting a good sense of what were the priorities and the underpinnings of the project, because it's definitely possible, it happens a lot, that something will be programmed that officially fulfills all the requirements that were listed, but doesn't... Um, really capture the spirit of the content, I guess. Like, if you're designing an interface, you need to have a good sense of the different importances of the different elements, you know, and which things you see first, and which things can be de-emphasized, and which things are exciting, which things are just formalities. And because he was involved from an early stage, he had a good intuitive sense of all of those things. Right, right. Because technology, like, it's such a slippery slope, and, like, it, it just... 
you know, it's one of the, it's one of those things where you, I think, uh, if you're just considering it quickly, it's like, oh yeah, it's easy. Just make an app. But then when you actually get into the weeds, there's just so many things to think about, you know? Um, yeah. Apps are a pain. I mean, they're a pain. Yeah. <laughs> what needs to happen is, you know, enough of these things need to be made so that then there's platforms for things, you know, so they don't need to be reinvented each time. I mean, already, if someone wants to make something that's kind of serialized and kind of site specific, it would be a lot easier for them because we built this platform. Right. Um, and hopefully that can keep happening because yet building them from scratch for each one is not that realistic. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like, what is that? Like, cause I don't, I'm, and forgive me if I'm misspeaking cause I'm not very well versed technologically, but it's like open source code or whatever, right? Like don't people. Oh, some, yeah. The code, I mean, the code is, some of the code is open source, but then when the actual code that people develop from that is not necessarily at all open source. Right. Um, so it just in their evolution, you know, it used to be that websites were a big pain to make, but then, you know, WordPress came along and site and, you know, services like that. Right. So now they have a basic site. It's easy. Apps are still not really at that point yet. Mm-hmm. Um, or not with any nuance. So, um, yeah, it's still kind of a drag. You know, it's also a drag that you need to have an iPhone or an iPad for the thing. Um, and that shouldn't be where it's headed. But I have to believe it won't be where it's headed, you know. Uh, these things are becoming more and more ubiquitous, obviously. So we sort of decided that we needed to just go ahead and, and do something and not wait till the timing was perfect or not wait till everything was all figured out. Yeah. Well, no, I was like, I was looking at my iPhone, I think it was yesterday. And I was like, you know what I should do is I should just go back to like the old school phone without internet access and all this stuff. And then I thought, but then I won't have all my contacts synced. And it's like, they, <laughs> they, they've got you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, I'm trapped. Uh-huh. I don't want to lose that. And, you know, I don't want to have to reenter all this stuff. It's just, I feel like once you, once you get one, you're sort of done. You know, it's like, you, or it's stuck. yeah, you get like hooked into the system. Um, I didn't even, until two days before the launch, I didn't even have an iPhone. I was still on the flip phone. Um, and then the Friday before the Monday, I came into the office, dropped my phone, you know, the flip and the phone split in half, and uh, so I finally had to cross over to the exact thing. Is it's hard to go back? Right. That's what once I. Once yeah. you're kind of woven in, so yes. it's so when when you haven't crossed any bridge yet, it's kind of good to linger. Yeah. Because you can only go one way. It seems. Yeah, because I'm like just like sitting there like fucking with Twitter and. Uh, you know, it's like almost like a, you know, I don't like that I'm doing that. You know what I'm saying? It feels like yeah, empty, no. empty and compulsive. And I'm like, why am I doing this? I just spent like an hour <laughs> just looking at this. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's interesting though, that you conceived of all this without actually being immersed in the world of the iPhone. Like did, was there a benefit to that? Like the fact that you were. Uh, sure. I think the benefit, I mean, the, the, you know, there's obviously the drawbacks in which I was just ignorant. <laughs> um, but the benefits are. One, I could think about it in a kind of more fundamental principles way, like I was saying, really just making that list of like what are the main things that this thing can do um, rather than getting some really subtle techie solution. I mean, because, you know, science history is ridiculous and a little hard to describe, but at its core, it's um, it's kind of, there's just a few fundamentals. You walk around, you read stuff. You wait each day, you get a new thing, you know? Mm. Um, and so it was useful to have to think of the 
the phone and the iPad in those very simplistic ways. Uh, but also, it's just sometimes nice, the same way that it helped McSweeney's to be in San Francisco instead of New York, so that it wasn't surrounded by the day-to-day buzz of the publishing world, it can be helpful to not know what's going on and to not know what everyone else is trying and like your supposed competition and other failures and all those things. Uh, because just the sheer mass of stuff can be a little depressing. And I still feel that way sometimes. It's just there's all these people trying to do their thing and <laughs> most of them are probably fine. You know, it's not like they're terrible things or bad people. It's just a whole bunch of okay stuff. And you can think, why do I want to put more of that into the world? <laughs> yeah, no, so the, it's such an interesting point. I think about that all the time, like looking at the you know social media in particular, but the web, like it seems like every day more and more people are trying to make more and more stuff. And I guess artistic stuff would be the context here. And that's great. But it's like, A, I think to myself, how, like nobody's going to be able to make a living. You know what I'm saying? It's like... Or only like a very small few. It's like winning the lottery. It literally is like that. You know, it's like you you win the lottery if you become somebody who actually gains a a readership that can really support you. It's like, you know, it's crazy to think how that happens. And then, you know, all these different projects, like when you conceive of your own projects, do you feel like an enormous pressure to produce something of extreme high quality? do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you manage that? When I, at the, when I'm starting a project at the beginning, I'm definitely good. I think about, I, I approach them in what feels like the right way to me. You know, it's just, I want to see if I can do this. I want to see what this would look like, you know, and it's also very, um, oriented on the thing itself, you know, what's on the page or in this case, I guess what's on the screen and not, anything really to do with the uh, reception or sales or results or whatever. I'm able to keep all that stuff nicely in line when you're doing it though, especially when you get a little tired of it, when the novelty wears off, when there's new challenges you had to conceive of, that's when it can be tougher. Um, and that's when you can, I think, fall prey to more of the, um, the general chatter that can be a little overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, so, you, you, I mean you, that's right. You just you can't think too much about how it's going to be received. You just basically have to really want to do it and make the thing, and then do your best to to get it out there. Yeah, I mean, I would say that as for any you know any artistic endeavor, yeah, a desire to actually make the thing is a pretty fundamental, <laughs> and because uh, almost all these levels of success are still don't even feel like levels of success once you're there. You know, I mean, people think like the way just, it's always shifting goalposts sort of in any experience, right? If I just had a story accepted by a journal, then I'd be so happy. So then you get your story accepted by a journal. If it would just be accepted by a better journal, I'd be so happy, you know? And then if I just had a book published and then your book comes out and no one really cares about it, or some people care about it, but now you need a successful book. I mean, none of these things change anyone's life. Um, so basically you just need to want to do it. And, uh, but it helps to not be watching everyone else trying and failing, (laughs) you know? Well, yeah. And just to be, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, aware of your own passions, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, let's talk a bit about, like, I want to, I want to kind of go back in time and like trace how you got to this point. Uh, like you're, you know, biographically, like, where are you from? 
I'm from Virginia, and uh, I came out to San Francisco after school just because a friend was driving out here. And um, I got involved with McSweeney's because I had a little construction experience. I'd worked as a carpenter for a little while, a pretty bad carpenter. But uh, And Dave Eggers had just moved out to San Francisco and was trying to build 826 Valencia, this uh, free tutoring center for kids that we have out here, or they have, we have, whatever. Um, and so they... It wasn't ready to open yet. They need people to help build the place and build the pirate supply store that was in the front. And I had this bit of construction experience, so I volunteered to do that. So I was—I didn't even really quite understand its connection with McSweeney's at the time or how close it was. But um, I was working on that, and then the story was ready. The store was ready to open. So they asked me if I wanted to sit as a cash register, so I did that, selling eye patches and stuff. But not many people were buying eye patches or anything. <laughs> so I had a lot of free time. So Dave just sort of was all the McSweeney's people, the circle that's where we're back in New York and he was out of San Francisco. So there was all this stuff to be done and no one to do it. So some things just sort of ended up in front of me, which is sort of the way it still works now. It's a very ad hoc fluid organization. Um, and within like three months, I was managing editor. I was not, managing there were no other editors i was not managing anybody but it was called managing editor um and i was yeah that was 2002 wow so and it all just went, but i didn't have any editing experience or design experience it was just problem solving i guess wow okay so um okay so as a child were you bookish and interested <laughs> in this stuff is this something that you kind of felt like you were going to get involved in and you just didn't know quite how or was it something that came as a surprise to you it, uh, I certainly, I think, would have been happy if I knew this was an option. I would go to the library all the time. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't like one of those families where we sit around and talk about, you know, what was reviewed in the New York Times on a Sunday or something or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, my mom was a librarian, and I, I would go to the library every week and get a big stack of books. And uh, so I think that attitude maybe helped me a little bit just in that I was always a a reader much more than I was a literary person, you know, um, in terms of like caring about the scene in general or trends or whatever. It was just, and so hopefully as an editor, I was able to approach the books the same way, just as a reader. Um, ambition, you know, for a while, I guess I wanted to be on the Baltimore Orioles. That was probably the last distinct ambition i've ever had and then <laughs> since then i've just been you know get through the day <laughs> okay so where did you go to college I went to yale for college and studied philosophy oh wow okay it's interesting i've talked to so many writers on this show and you know an unusual number of them studied philosophy in college or maybe it's not unusual to study philosophy and then get involved in literature but yeah i mean i guess you could spin out the whole thing about just you know, a process of questioning things, um, particularly because it seems like if you major in English, which I guess would be the traditional writerly thing to do, you know, aren't you just reading a bunch of Milton and stuff like that? It's not like, it's not necessarily having much to do with what drew you to books in the first place. Right, 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 right. And yeah, there's something, there was always something about, I don't know, maybe this is going to sound silly, but having somebody else pick out my reading list for me always sort of bothered me. 
I, you know, especially especially in English, you know, something like it's one thing if it's philosophy and it's like, okay, introduce me to this because I know nothing, but I sort of knew what I liked to read when it came to fiction, and, you know. I like to follow. Right. I mean, English. I guess you just have to think of it as it is a you're majoring in a study of you know 500 years of literature coming out of England, basically, and then to make sense of something like Milton or whatever. But if you think of it as I like to write, I like to read, then it's not really necessarily the same topic as what you to it. Yeah. So, okay, so you went to Yale, so that means you, you must have been a pretty bright kid, like good grades, all that kind of stuff? Uh, you know, good, and, good enough, I guess. <laughs> good enough. And then uh, at Yale, um, extremely studious or not? So no, much? I was never, um, I don't know, I've always just kind of gotten things done, but never had a big drive to do more than that. Um, no, at Yale, I remember being very... Um, curious, I guess. I mean, I took that philosophy stuff seriously in a way that kind of feels charming to me looking back at it. I mean, but I was really trying to figure things out, you know? Yeah. I was looking to the answers, looking for the answers to questions. And like, it would frustrate me when I found a hole in someone's argument. <laughs> and like, I would write a paper, you know, debunking whoever. And and some level, I kind of expected them to go, oh, we're going to stop, you know, we will now stop teaching Mill or whatever. You know, that's it for Leibniz. We found out that he was wrong because Eli wrote this paper. Um, and, of course, that's not not how it works. But um, it was, you know, a good experience, a good process, definitely. Well, you know, it's interesting, though. You can't replicate that energy that you have when you're 19, 20 years old or whatever, you know. And uh, there's something glorious about that, I think, when – you feel like you can figure things out or I don't know, just the, the vastness of possibility the the sense that you have when you're that age is, is awesome. Yeah. But you know, it relates a little bit to what we were talking about, um, about sort of putting yourself in a bubble to some extent, because that's what allows that is you don't have the, um, as much knowledge of all the people who have said the same thing before or asked the same question before that you do it in a new way. And so like with this project, for example, um, you know, I didn't know about all the other people trying to do, you know, digital fiction or the history of the form or anything like that. Um, and by just going into it, just saying, I'm going to try to figure this out, it, it lets you be wholehearted about it in a way that you maybe couldn't um, do if you, you know, got the full broad scope of the thing. Sure, sure. So... Uh, you got, and then just like to, to clarify, because I know you said you work construction, but you got out of Yale and then jumped in your got out of Yale, jumped in your buddy's car. Over, and, yeah, and then it came out here. The internet was extremely popular at the time. This is early 2000, and uh, so I got this job writing science trivia questions for a website that never existed. These were like trivia questions based on late 90s movies. And then investigating the science behind those movies. <laughs> like in Armageddon, Steve Buscemi gets space rage and fires a machine gun all over Mars. What would actually happen if you fired a gun in outer space? A, it would be very slow. B, you know, and so on. Um, what would happen? It would actually, so the semi-smart answer is to say it wouldn't fire because there's no oxygen for the combustions. Oh, right. 
But the even smarter answer that I found out is it turns out that the cartridges are airtight and supply their own oxygen. So it would fire, and then the bullet would just go essentially forever because there's no air resistance. Would it come out? Would it come out at bullet speed? I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Uh, I guess it would come out at bullet speed. It just would not slow down. Okay. Or it would slow down much, 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 much more slowly. Right, right. Okay. And then I don't know what would happen to you in terms of going backwards or not. That would, I don't know. It was just a multiple <laughs> choice question. <laughs> so I wrote a few hundred of those, you know, about men in black. And oh, there was a movie, My Giant, starring Billy Crystal and uh, George Murison, this very tall basketball player for the Washington Bullets. So I wrote a lot of questions about the, um, you know, his pituitary gland and stuff like that. <laughs> so, yeah, I did that for a year and then left to, I built this kind of little shack in the woods in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia, having no idea what I was doing at all. And that seemed to go okay. So then I moved back to San Francisco and got this job on the rehabbing this old Victorian, this really nice mansion, just like doing the most boring thing. like, you know, like I'd be up on like the back of the house on the fourth floor scaffolding and I would pry off this tiny piece of trim, dig out some rot that was behind it, pour this one kind of polymer in the hole to kill some mold, spack it with this other kind of polymer, sand it down, and then put the trim back on so it looked exactly the same. One time, like I spilled something on the roof and I remember having to wash the roof. That seemed like a particularly pointless activity. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I did that for three months. You know, I learned some things. And you partly, had, uh, did you have what? no, you had no experience. You said you built a shack in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Is that the part of Virginia yeah. you're from? Are you from the, uh, no, that's, that's South. I'm from Northern Virginia, like the suburbs of DC, just general suburbia. This is more about two hours south, kind of near Charlottesville, where the University of Virginia is. Okay, yeah. Um, so, I mean, this was totally in the middle of nowhere. It was like there was no running water, no electricity, end of a long, long dirt road. Um, and when I did that, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, like, you know, hammering and the nails would go all different directions and everything. But, uh, you know, it's not that hard at all. If you have time and low ambitions and low standards and a little bit of help, you know, building a shack is not, it's all like right angles and <laughs> it is not a big deal. And uh, so that was an important lesson, I think, though, that you can just sort of figure things out if you give yourself a little time and have realistic expectations um, and are happy with good enough rather than perfect. And in a way that I think everything I've done since then has been approached from a similar attitude, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm such a non, I'm not a handy person. Like I'm not good with tools, much to my wife's chagrin. Um, (laughs) But I feel like if you built even like a rudimentary shack, that would have to be a sense of accomplishment, like to give you some confidence. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I remember when it was done being very, very proud. And I left like the next day, (laughs) still standing there. Um, you just dropped your hammer and walked away. Like, <laughs> just this, yeah, like dropping the mic. Yeah, nothing <laughs> more to do here. There's nothing the um, market. My work is done. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's all great. But you know, it's totally doable. I would recommend it to anyone listening to this: build a shack, build a shed, build a treehouse, whatever. Yeah. Um, 
it's not, you know, it's just put them sideways, you know. I mean, <laughs> it's all pretty basic stuff. Even if you had no idea, I had like a book that I checked out, just like how to build your own house. And that's what I was looking at every day. But um, even without that, you could probably kind of figure out something. Sure. You'd have low, low standards. Sure, sure, sure. So, Rustic charm. Uh, so then you get in this car, you go to San Francisco, you join up with McSweeney's, and, and the rest is history. Do you feel, I mean, that seems like a very serendipitous path and a place to land. I mean, do you feel lucky? Oh, it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely lucky. Definitely lucky and definitely a fluke. The only thing that makes it any kind of logical story or, you know, lessons to learn from it or whatever is, um, you know, I'm skipping over other things I kind of tried and dead ends and stuff like that. I mean, for a while, I remember thinking it'd be really cool to work for Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> and so I remember sending them a bunch of emails, um, you know, where I get like weird internships or volunteer places or that construction job even, you know, which like at the time I thought maybe I'll be a carpenter. And I did it for three months and said, oh, I definitely don't want to be a carpenter. Um, so I was sort of willing to to float around. Um you know, so by the time the Sweeney things happened, I was, I guess, about to be 25, which is still really young, of course, but, you know, so that was three years of just adrift, three or four years of being fairly adrift. And it, you know, at that age, I can feel like a long time. So, I don't know, I guess I think that most, any job like that, it almost requires a circuitous path, uh, you know, I feel like the best jobs are ones you can't just apply for in a normal way. Right. The ones you sort of have to end up at. Sure. So being willing to take that path, I guess, was helpful. So, so how did you like? What was the learning curve like for you as an editor? Like, did uh, was Dave involved in every project, or did you have a ton of autonomy, or did you have other people that you were working with who sort of uh, helped you along as you were learning the ropes? There was no one else really, just because there was no one else. Um, <laughs> Dave was definitely involved early on, but pretty soon it was pretty autonomous. Um, I mean, Dave was just a good example in the sense he definitely has the attitude of, we'll just figure it out, you know? Like, you know, everyone, if you, it was just expected, for example, that if you edit a book, you're also going to lay out that book. Um, so that was just an expectation. So then you learn how to do it. And then you can learn how to do that. Why don't you learn how to design a book or learn how to print a book or any of these things? Um, so that's just the attitude of, well, what else, you know? That was a really good example, I think. Uh, in terms of, like, actually teaching editing techniques, I don't know. I mean, I guess I learned that somehow. I don't know. I couldn't even say what I've learned. Um, I think writers are grateful for any attention and any actual help because, you know, I think so much of editing is, you know, can be kind of a formality. So, um, at its core, I mean, you can certainly speak about you know, your own experiences of this, but you just want someone who's reading it with an open mind and, you know, pursuing the same goals as the writer and is willing to talk it through and pay attention and have an eye to detail and, you know, explore solutions together, just kind of normal, being a good person or being a good friend or things like that are as important as anything. Like I never had any kind of like Gordon Lish, like no adverbs or like cut off the last paragraph or something like that. <laughs> right. Right. It was just like, let's try and figure it out. 
Well, and I think like yeah. like you were saying earlier, you know, you, your your preparation really is just going. You know, you had a librarian for a mother, and you were at the library constantly. And you know, in addition to being a good person and a good friend, it's also just being a good reader, and that's hard to find. You know, like uh, that that skill as an editor. You know, somebody who can really read with a careful eye and an open mind and an empathic mind, as opposed to trying to assert their own will on the story. If you know what I mean. Yeah, I don't think it's so much that it's hard to be a good reader. I think it's just hard to um, hold on to that approach when you know that your job is to be like the official editor. I mean, because everyone has that experience of, you know, picking up a bunch of books and liking some of them and not liking others and liking some for a while and then getting bored or whatever. Um, that's a pretty universal experience, and particularly for anyone who gets into editing. Uh, it's just, I think, sometimes you can think of editing as um, like what should books be like or or depending on what kind of company you're in, you know, what's my boss's complaint going to be about this or what are the salespeople, what's the marketing team going to say about this? Um, all those kinds of concerns. And those can really clutter the experience. Yeah. So what's next for you? You know, like what do you, what do you envision for your new venture and what do you envision for, um, you know, your future in publishing and the future of publishing in general? <laughs> um, well, just for me, that's the easier question. Future of publishing. Oh, I have no idea. Um, yeah. Future. Are, are, you, are you more optimistic? Are you more optimistic now than when you started? No. No, I'm not necessarily so optimistic. I mean, I'm not necessarily so pessimistic, but I'm not more optimistic um, because, you know, we should have been the one to make this, to be a publisher should be making these things. Um, I mean, I feel like big publishers should be actively engaged in trying to understand the new ways that um, these stories can be told. You know, I think publishers, to the extent that they're now a part of in some sense, if you're a big publisher, you're also a technology company, right? Um, you know, and you're competing with Amazon and with Apple and all these things. And so there needs to be some sort of research and development attitude and budget in order to be competitive in that world. And so I would like to see publishers, you know, doing... If a publisher did four of these things a year, four things like the science history, you know, it would cost them however much money, Um it wouldn't be nothing, but it wouldn't be prohibitive for someone like that. And then they're finding out what works, which forms work, and also they're owning them then. Each one they make, the next one will be easier because it will have built the code and built the infrastructure and built the knowledge base for these things. And it's building the audience for these things. So I think that's what needs to happen. So far, it seems a little bit like publishers are sitting back and letting other people do those experiments. And so that might work out. That might work out. Well, but they, it might happen that. Sorry. I was going to say they can just they can just you know hire you or acquire your venture. Right? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Um, but so far, it's more like they just want to like get it all figured out. They want to like see one that comes out and makes ten million dollars, and they're like, oh yeah, that's the kind of thing we should be doing. Right. Um, right. But by the time that happens, you know, the fear is that it'll be too late. Yeah, like that, People won't a, be looking to publishers. It's a really interesting question because, like you said, I don't think it would be cost prohibitive to budget for some experimentation, some sort of laboratory that's paying attention because 
it, it almost seems negligent or it does seem negligent to me to not be engaged as a business in that's in, you know, if you're in the business of publishing or if you're in the business of um, disseminating stories, <laughs> how could you not have at, at least some contact with this realm and some interest in experimenting? It seems crazy to me. I mean, they are, to be fair, on small levels, they are. Um, I mean, they're trying to do these like enhanced ebooks sometimes. Um, there have been a couple high profile apps, but it's, you know, been fairly tentative. And I think there's also a lot of people, sort of a lot of mid level or lower people who are excited about this stuff and have a lot of good ideas, but they're having to justify those expenses in a real kind of, you know, cost benefit analysis way to the people at the top of these corporations. And that's a tough thing to do, obviously. Uh, because it's it's not really built for this R&D format. It's not what people are used to. But uh, particularly as these publishers get larger and larger, right, now that there's, what's the Penguin Random House? Is that what happens? Um, I, want it, I want it to be called Random Penguin really bad. <laughs> that would be. That would be. Um, and uh, that's the kind of nice thing that that should be. You know, people can be concerned about the drawbacks of that. Maybe they should be or maybe not. I don't know. But that makes it that much more possible because if they made, you know, if they had made this out of history, that whole corporation would now have like a really elegant content management system for any app they wanted. They could serialize any book they wanted. They could do site specific for any kind of travel guide or scavenger hunt. They would own all those things. Um, whether or not the science history was, you know, a huge hit. So, it seems to me like a good opportunity. I mean, what do I know? I like I worked at McSweeney's. We never figured out how to make money. So like, you know, you shouldn't. They're the ones who have run corporations. So, but uh, it seems like there's possibilities there. And uh, you know, if they're depending on people like us to do it, I don't know. I mean, it takes kind of a little bit of insanity yeah. before guys try and sort of make like the best you know book app ever or whatever. Um, so. Well, any any any, like any innovation, any innovation, or any kind of entrepreneurial venture requires a leap of faith. Um, and you know, one of the things that was coming to mind as you were talking about, uh, you know, publishing in in that last few seconds was uh, geography and the fact that you're in San Francisco and have at least uh, you know closer proximity to Silicon Valley and to the world of technology than the traditional publishers in New York, like. Does that play in at all? Like, do you feel like that might open up possibilities for you and your venture because you have access maybe to more people with those kinds it of could. minds? I mean, probably if we were smarter, it would be. Uh, we've also, in some ways, shied away from that world because the instincts there are to be so huge. Um, it's sort of a different kind of ambition where, you know, everyone wants to make like the next Twitter or the next Facebook or, you know, something that can be everything to everybody. Right, and so that's why there, there's a lot more work going on in the platforms, different kinds of reading platforms, sort of generic ones that like this will work on all devices, and you can just publish your thing easily, um, which definitely has its place and its value. But there's fewer people who are maybe able to do or interested in doing the heavy lifting of what content is going to fill those vessels and really justify them. It's kind of the attitude is we'll just make the platform and let you know the people, the crowd, whatever, figure that out, which works for some kinds of things. I mean, it works for status updates, you know, and for tweets. And I don't mean those in like a negative way. It does work for those, and those, you know, there can be great work in those. But 
it's not necessarily what's going to lead to novels that we really care about. Yeah, you know what I want? I want to see like really ingenious programmers and tech people who, you know, having worked in the Facebooks and the Googles and the whatevers for however many years on these big, huge, you know, massive projects, you know, where they're, they're sort of just coding and coding and doing this stuff and kind of an assembly line. I'm just imagining all this, by the way. Uh, I want to see them, I want to see them, you know, decide that they want to do something more meaningful. I want to find the tech people who are book nerds and I want them to somehow like connect and create like a website where we can find them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, right. it's, yeah. it's such a needle in a haystack, but if we could somehow get them to group together and let us know that they exist, I think that they would have a lot of business from writers. There would be a way for yeah. us to join forces. I mean, it'd be interesting to make a site almost where, um, you know, it's something a little bit like Kickstarter or something where, like, you know, everyone kind of presents the projects that they want to do, they just need a programmer for, and then the godlike programmers can just peruse it and pick. That's the one that I want, you <laughs> right. know? And That's I get, the and one I get, that seems most interesting to me. Right, and I get, like, 50%, you know? Like, we just split it down the sure. middle and go, you know? Um, yeah, so, that would be great. I mean, and hopefully that'll start happening, maybe not that whole, you know fantastic version of it but definitely these people who you know made some money but want to work on a different kind of project that would be nice well I, just, I can't help i mean i'm excited by the silent history for the simple fact that like i can't help but imagine that there's going to be an evolution in storytelling related to technology and that we're at the and i, and I can't help but sense that we're at the beginning of that wave as opposed to you know the end like i think it's just starting yeah. in a lot of senses so you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a big fan of the experimentation. I applaud you for it. And I'm curious to know, like, how has it been going? Because this thing, this thing launched in October. Is that correct? Yeah, in early October, beginning of October. So how has the response been generally? And, like, how is, you know, have you been having to manage and curate, like, an insane amount of field reports? Has it overwhelmed you? Like, what's it been like so far? It's been really good. It's been people have been responding in the way that we imagined and hoped for, I guess, both in terms of the their engagement with the story and their experience of the format. They've both been really encouraging. And also just that it has worked. You know, it hasn't broken. Um, no one's gotten killed, like, standing up some street corner somewhere or ended up in a ditch. <laughs> um, it's all gone smoothly. There have been some great field reports written, and we have about 250 of them so far in nine countries, mostly in the U.S., but in a lot in England and Australia, too, and handful of other spots and uh so that's been really good um you know it's still a challenge just even to like get the word out it's still a challenge we've had good press but it's still always like you need to keep pushing it and hustling i mean an unexpected thing about serialization which should have been obvious is just it's never it's not over till it's over you know i mean as i'm sure you can relate like you know you do all your work up to the publishing of the thing and then it launches and it's hard to know, is that the day that your work ends or is that the day that your work begins? So we're still trying to navigate those priorities. But it's been really encouraging. I mean, it's been encouraging in the sense that it confirms that the hunger is out there and that people are ready for new experiences. One of my concerns going in was just, will anyone even understand this? You know, will they even want to deal with this at all? And uh, as people do, it seems like people are excited to to try new things. Cool. And then I've noticed that, you know, and, and part of the, I think part of uh, 
the reason why there's been so much buzz about this and has been the newness of it, you know, the fact that it kind of breaks some new ground. But I'm curious to know because uh, I've gone through this myself and I think anybody who publishes a book for sure goes through this where you do all this work to conceive the thing and, and then actually make it and then you've got to put it out into the world and you've got to market it. And, you know, with a, with a project like the silent history, there's an obvious hook where it's like, oh, this is a new thing. And it's, you know, it's rooted in the, you know, digital devices. And I can, I can sort of see how that would be an easier sell to the media than like, I have a new story collection, you know, or whatever. Right. Um, right. But I'm curious to know, how did you manage the marketing and PR aspects of it? And th that's also a ton of work. So like, how, how did you guys do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a lot, well, something we've been realizing, it's a lot, it's easy to market to press. Um, it's just, it's an easy story that relates to a lot of things that people are interested in, but it's actually hard to market in terms of individual sales, just because people, you know, for whatever we talk about bookstores dying and all these things, there's still you know, however many hundreds or thousands of bookstores all over the country. You know, there's people who identify themselves as people who go buy books. There's places to buy books. There's websites to buy books. There's people reviewing books. There's people discussing books. You know, there's that whole infrastructure built around people, you know, finding out about books and buying them. With these strange literary act things, you know, you can never stumble upon this thing. Um, no one's out there saying, like, I like to read things like The Silent History. You know, I'm interested in, like, site-specific serialized apps. Oh, here's a new one of those. So we're kind of creating the market in that sense. And that's been a challenge, definitely. It's something we're figuring out. But I think that will only get better as there's more and more of these things, whatever these things means. Just literary apps. Or whatever, I don't know, digital fiction experiments, yeah. new storytelling, whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it'll be, and I don't know when it'll be. Wow. But yeah, there's definitely all this attention there because I think there is a hunger there. Um, but did you? how did you do it? Well, did you, are you just like sending out emails and doing all the hustling yourself, or do you have people helping you? It's been a mix. We did a lot of stuff ourselves, and then for a while we even had like a PR people who were helping us. Um, which uh, was good. I mean, they were like really good people. It's just the whole thing is a mystery to me. I mean, the whole experience, for better or for worse, I come from this McSweeney's background. Um, so I'm used to bootstrapping things, you know, and just trying to figure out how to get it done and doing things in a kind of small, hands-on way. And so for this, we were also in between those two approaches. And uh, it's hard to know. It's always hard to know. It's always hard to know what would happen if you did a different path, I guess, than you did. Um, so, yeah, because you never know. You can never put your finger right. If I had done this, this would happen. If I hadn't done that, this would happen. Um, so we just kind of learn as we go. Well, I think you've done uh, a pretty good job. I mean, I've been seeing lots of great stuff about it on the web. And, um, you know, I think that... We're going to continue to see more and more ex experiments in this vein. So congratulations on being, uh, you know, first of the line or if not first of the line, <laughs> close to first of the line. And early. I wish you the, uh, the best of luck with it. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. There you go. That's it. That's the program. That is Eli Horowitz. Go check out thesilenthistory.com. You can find The Silent History on Twitter at Silent History. And it is also on the Facebook 
And you can also just go get the app. It's available for your iPad or your iPhone. Check it out. Uh, engage with it. Engage with it. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music, as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And I should point out as a technicality that the uh, the music that was playing when I was uh, doing the Twitter segment there at the front end of the show, that's a song by Brian Eno. That is not a Kill Rockstars song. So thank you to Brian Eno. I love you, Brian Eno. Don't forget, folks, to go get the Other People app, the official app of this program, available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It's an app. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. It's the best way to listen to this program, and it also allows you to uh, access premium content, which is not free, but which can be had for a pittance, a couple of bucks. It's nothing. Uh, So do that. You get 50 shows for free. Do you know how that works? You get 50 episodes for free. And then if you want to dig into the back catalog, uh, a lot of great interviews there in the back catalog. You pay 2 bucks a month or 9 bucks for an entire year. You have access. It's simple. It's like It comes down to like a penny a day. I don't know what it is, but it's extremely cheap. So please uh, get the app for free. Get 50 episodes. And if you want the premium content, you can access it there from the app. But you don't have to pay if you get the app. You can have the app for free. Am I making any sense? Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, So what am I going to do now? I think I'm going to go to the gym. Maybe I should do that. It's 2013. Everybody's going to the gym. I can go to the gym. I can do that. I can lift some weights while looking in a mirror. I can look at myself lifting weights while looking in a mirror. I can look at other people lifting weights. It's a weird thing, that dynamic. I find it strange, and yet sometimes I do it. Why do I do it? Uh, I think it's because, if I'm being honest with you, uh, I'm I'm frightened. I'm scared of getting older. I'm scared of getting fat. I'm scared of getting soft. And everything I do is fear-based, which uh, which I just realized. I am completely driven by fear. Uh, oh, Jesus. Please remember that Immanuel Kant, I believe that's how you pronounce it, Immanuel Kant never saw a mountain in person. And that Frank Lloyd Wright died... After a heart attack and surgery, that's all for now. Uh, That's the end of the program. I I will be back again soon. Do you hear me? I will be back again soon with another conversation with another author that will meander and that will hopefully surprise you a bit. Thank you for listening. Uh, I appreciate you. Do you hear me? I appreciate your listenership. And when I think about you, uh, it makes me feel, uh, what's the word? Grateful? It gives me a gratitude attitude. Don't ever say that, by the way. Don't ever say gratitude, attitude, uh, sincerely, ever.